Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast. This is Chris. Glad to be back with you today. In this episode, Paul Hugobart talks about the importance of having the right story. This comes out of a sermon series called A Better Story that he did at his church this past year. Really great stuff. We hope you enjoy it as we dive into this next episode together. Well, as we think about especially the idea of story, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been, a room, been in a room, and, and this normally happens, I'm just going to be real honest, this tends to happen with guys more than it does with women. I don't know, we're just wired this way, but have you ever been in a room where, where one guy tells a story, and it's a pretty good story? It's got everybody laughing, everybody's caught up in the message of the story, it's really entertaining. And then inevitably, there's another guy in the room that is going to tell a story too. And that story has to be a little bit more entertaining than the story that the last guy told, right? It's got to have people laughing just a little bit more. It's got to be a little bit more entertaining. And if there's a third guy in the room, guess what he's going to do? He's going to tell a story too. And it's going to be a story that probably goes back 30 or 40 years. It's going to be a story that nobody around, maybe nobody could remember whether that story even really happened or not, but but it's a good story. And there may be some embellishment in there. Who knows? But we're going to laugh more, and it's going to be even more entertaining than the story before it, right? For some reason, we, I think as men, we've got this propensity. When we get together and start telling stories, they just keep going. And pretty soon, you can't tell whether it's true or not. You're just not sure. But there's a lot of stories. And we've had a good time sharing these stories. We've all been entertained, and we've all laughed a little. Well, the reality is when you think about the idea of a story, especially as we think about it in relation to life's narrative, the truth of it is we all tell a story and we all believe a story. We all have a narrative. Society has a narrative. You have a narrative that helps you define what life is really all about, what life means in your eyes. Well, let me tell you something about narratives. I want to tell you this, not all narratives value truth, just like when you get a bunch of guys in the room together. Not all narratives value truth or are of themselves true. And it's just kind of funny and entertaining maybe when we're just telling stories, but when we're trying to tell the story of life, this really matters. Because not all stories that we tell about the meaning of life or the purpose of life or what life is really about are true. Not all of these narratives are true. All I have to do is put these words on the screen behind me. And you probably can nod your head and say, yeah, I've I've felt that way before. Even in the news, we don't always know what to believe. We don't know if the narrative is true, if the narrative is false, if the narrative represents somebody's opinion or if it's really based on facts, and then the question is, well, what facts and whose facts, right? Not all narratives are true. So that brings me to a question. What do you think is the most influential narrative at play in the Western world currently? What do you think it is? Well, some might say it's got to be the Christian worldview, right? Because after all, we're a Judeo-Christian society But the truth is, while that may have been once true, it's no longer Christianity or the Christian story. In fact, 
Christian author and sometimes cultural commentator, John Mark Comer, in his recent book, Live No Lies, which, by the way, if you want to go more in depth on what we'll be talking about this morning, I would highly recommend this book to you. This is what he says. He says, in our current culture, the place of the church and the place of everyday Christians has shifted from one of honor, which if you go back a couple hundred years, there's no doubt that was true. It was a place of honor held by the Christian worldview. But he says it's actually now become one of shame. So we can certainly at least conclude from that whether you agree with his words explicitly or not. We could at least conclude that he's probably right that certainly the Christian worldview is no longer the dominant worldview in the Western world. Another way we know that's true is Based on Pew, the Pew Research Center's research over the last decade or decade and a half at this point in time, as they have now termed this, uh, called, they've called this the rise of the nuns, and they don't mean a bunch of Catholic ladies dressed in white and black, you know, running down the road. What they mean is the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, it's not an uprising, right, of the nuns, but it's the rise of the nuns, these people who have no real belief in, in anything at all. When the question is asked, would you identify yourself as somebody who is religious? Okay, if it is religious, then Christian. Would you identify as spiritual? Would you identify as atheist, agnostic? They just say, I'd rather not identify as anything. And maybe the closest thing would be agnosticism. And so as we've seen these things happen, it makes me ask the question, why? How have we gotten to this point where where this is kind of the, the dominant worldview. And to understand that, we're going to have to t- take just a brief kind of hiatus in understanding the last 100 years or last 150 years or so. So stick with me because this does matter. You may have heard these words, and you may have heard them apart from each other, secular humanism. Secular humanism actually is the dominant worldview of the Western world at this point in time. And let me try to explain to you real quickly what secular humanism is. The word secular means by the Oxford Language Dictionary, it's denoting attitudes, activities, or other things that have no religious or spiritual basis. Basically saying, no religion, no spirituality whatsoever. That's what secular means, or apart from those things. Then humanism is this outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. So humanists believe, and they stress the potential value of goodness and goodness of human beings and emphasize common human needs and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. So then when you take secular and humanism and put it together, this is what you wind up with. It's humanism with regard in particular to the belief that humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without the belief in God. Now that's important, church, for us to understand what is happening in the world and in the culture around us. And this attitude of secular humanism has led to what many call the postmodern worldview. Now let me say this before we go any further and dig into this any further. I want you to hear this from me. We don't need to rail against culture around us. And and we've spent a lot of time doing that as a church. We, We don't need to do that. It's not all that productive. But we don't need to ignore the culture around us either. There's a sweet spot kind of somewhere in the middle between railing against culture and ignoring culture, and that is more this idea of understanding culture. 
we as the church, we become almost missionaries within a society that is no longer Christian. In fact, many have said we are now post-Christian, and I think that is very correct. So we need to understand the story that the culture around us is telling. We've talked about this a little bit before. For some, this will be a little bit of a review. But what are some of the pillars of postmodernism? Well, one of the first is this, that that you and I, we have the ability to make our own truth. Remember, secular humanism says that you and I, we can figure things out on our own. We don't need anybody else helping us, especially no God idea. We don't need God helping us to figure, help, help, help us figure things out. We can make our own truth. We're capable of making our own truth. And then if we believe that, the next one, it shouldn't come as a surprise that you and I, well, we make our own meaning, says postmodernism. And then lastly, what is the highest value of the postmodern worldview? Well, it's that nothing matters more in life than happiness. Whatever makes you happy, you go and do it, right? You do you, boo. Well, in case you're not sure whether this is actually what's going on, let me just help you see through the eyes of some influential professors, writers, poets within our American culture. And then one actress at the end as well. Here's what Jacob Norby says. He says, let me tell you something. Live your truth right out in the open. No hiding or apologizing for who you are. What do you have to lose? The good opinion of others? Believe me, they have no idea how to do life. And if they are looking at you at all when you're busy living your truth, it's probably with a mixture of curiosity and admiration for the boldness that they can't muster. In other words, you make your own truth. Now, you may have noticed the extreme logical fallacy in this statement, right? Jacob Nordby is talking to you, and he's talking to you, and he's talking to you, and he's talking to you. And guess what? If he's talking to you, all the people around you have no idea what life is really all about. And he's talking to you, then all the other people in this room have no idea what life is really all about. And so there's an incredible logical fallacy in this idea right here that you and I, that we make our own truth, and that all we have to do is live our own truth. Because your truth is not someone else's truth, and their truth is not your truth. And in other words, it's not really truth at all. Or how about this next one? Joseph Campbell said this, The meaning of life is whatever you ascribe it to be. Being alive is the meaning. Or how about what poet Philip Appleman said, Whatever we are, whatever we make of ourselves, is all we will ever have. And that, in its profound simplicity, is the meaning of life. We make our own meaning. Or Audrey Hepburn, who said, the most important thing is to enjoy your life, to be happy. It's all that matters. So this is at the heart of postmodernism, that we make our own truth, that you and I have the ability to make our own truth, craft it, whatever it is, whatever's inside of you, that's your truth, live your truth. That we make our own meaning. And that in the end, ultimately, nothing matters more in life than happiness. Let me ask you this question. It's a question you may be asking yourself as well in this moment. Why, why does any of this matter? I mean, why does any of this matter? And it isn't just about this just about the people out there. Why does this matter to us? Let me share with you something that, uh, that uh, David Foster Wallace said a number of years ago before, he, uh, before his untimely death. 
David Foster Wallace, if you're not familiar with him, was a cultural commentator. He was probably at the heart of the postmodern movement at a point in time and then became a critic of the postmodern movement as well. And this is what he had to say. He said, what's been passed down from the postmodern heyday is sarcasm, cynicism, a manic ennui, suspicion of all authority, suspicion of all constraints on conduct, and a terrible penchant for ironic diagnosis of unpleasantness instead of an ambition not just to diagnose and ridicule, but to redeem. You've got to understand that this stuff has permeated the culture. It's become our language. We're so in it, we don't even see that it's one perspective, one among many possible ways of seeing. And so I want to ask you a question. Is is David Foster Wallace right? And what I mean by that is trying to answer the question, does any of this really matter to us? Isn't this just what's happening out there and not what's happening in here? If you're unfamiliar with who Renew.org is, I want to just take one second and tell you a little bit about who we are and what we're all about. We care a ton about the theology behind Jesus-style disciple-making and really creating that firm foundation for churches and organizations to build upon. We invite you to check us out at Renew.org where we have free resources, ebooks, podcasts, and also we have a national conference that we have every year. And we're gathering in Indianapolis this year on April 25th and 26th. We just invite you to grab some tickets, check us out online, and see what we're all about. What Foster Wallace is arguing is basically that we're all so deeply influenced by the narrative of the culture around us that it's become our narrative as well. It's become my narrative. It's become your narrative as well. What if he is right? I mean, if so, then what? This morning, we're going to see that having the right story does matter. It's mattered for years. What you believe about life, what you believe about God, what you believe about Jesus matters. It will frame your worldview. Having the right story matters. You've got your Bibles. I'm going to invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to spend a little bit of time in in a couple of stories that fall back to back. And Ed shared a little bit with you uh, about these already this morning during his communion thoughts. And in here, we're going to see that having the right story matters. Having a better story matters. Life's narrative truly does matter. Here's what Matthew tells us. He says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jesus asked them this question, what about you? Who do you say I am? Jesus looks at his disciples and says, everybody's got an opinion about who I am, and you're willing to tell me about others' opinions about me, but what about you all? Because what you think about me matters right now. I mean, you're the ones I'm having the conversation with after all. I'm I'm not worried. Yes, I am worried, but Right now in this moment, I don't want to hear what other people have to say about me. I want to know what you think about me. And Simon, Peter, always the bold one, in this story and the next as well, 
stands up and says, you're the Messiah. Here's what I believe about you. You're the anointed one of God, the son of the living God. And so Jesus says to Simon Peter, he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, you are rock in a sense, And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus goes on to say, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Again, the meaning behind that is the anointed one of God. So that's the first little story that we see. And these stories in Matthew's gospel fall back to back and potentially a little bit of time expired between the two. We don't know. They could have happened right on the heels of each other. All Matthew tells us is that after this story, from that time on, after the first story, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. You see, Jesus knew that 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 is what it meant to be God's son. That is what it meant to be God's anointed, the Messiah. It meant that he was going to go to to Jerusalem. He was going to suffer and he was going to be killed. And on the third day, he would be raised to life. That's what Jesus knew about what it meant to be the Messiah. Jesus knew the story. But it seemed like in just the previous passage that Peter knew the story as well. But we find out here that Peter doesn't quite know the story. In fact, what we see, Matthew records this. Peter took Jesus aside. Now, can you imagine doing this? Taking Jesus aside and saying, come over here for a second. We've got to have a conversation about this. And then with an exclamation point, say, never, Lord. This is never going to happen to you. You're not going to die. That's not why you came to earth. You didn't come to earth to suffer. You came to earth to reign. I know the story of what the Messiah is here to do. You're here to be the king. And if you're going to be a king, we're going to need to build an army and we're going to need to get ready to overthrow the Romans. That's what you're here to do. You're here to overthrow the Romans. You're not here to suffer and die. So never, Lord. This is not going to happen to you. Now, if you have a hard time imagining this first part of the story, the next part is even a little bit more difficult to get our minds around as Jesus reacts to Peter and says these words. I just want you to think for a second. How would it feel to be on the receiving end of words like this? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. It's not God's story that you're worried about. It's something like your spin on God's story. It's it's the concerns that are human that you're most concerned about. And then Jesus said to his disciples these words. Whoever wants to be my disciple, this is what it's about, Jesus says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus had these incredible, these two incredible moments with Peter, or Peter really had these two incredible moments with Jesus. One where he says, you're the Messiah. And the next one where he says, never, that's not what being the Messiah is about. Jesus, you have the wrong story. And 
Jesus looks at Peter and says very boldly, Peter, no, you have the wrong story. Peter, you've got the wrong story. In a sense, Jesus says, that's not my story. What you just said, Peter, is not my story. It's not even your story about me, really, but the story that you have right now that you're putting forward as Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He says, that story, that picture you just tried to paint, that comes from the devil. Peter, you've got the wrong story. And so I want to come back to a question that we've been asking during the course of this message as we set the stage for the rest of this series. Why why does life's narrative matter? Why does having the right story matter? I mean, can't we, like the postmodernists, suggest make our own truth? I mean, doesn't, doesn't that work? It seems to be working for a lot of people, right? To, to just to make their own truth. Can't we just make our own meaning? Do, do we need to believe in a God who gives this life purpose and meaning? Can't we just make our own meaning? And boy, we sure see a lot of people living like there's nothing in life that matters more than happiness. Psychologist Steve Taylor said this in Psychology Today about eight years ago. He said this, the need for purpose is the one defining characteristics or is one of the defining characteristics of human beings, of what it means to be human. He says human beings crave purpose and suffer serious psychological difficulties when we don't have it. Purpose is a fundamental component of a fulfilling life. And so I've got a question for you. When we look at the dominant story the world is telling that finds its roots in secular humanism and the postmodern world of view, this, this idea that we can, we can make our own meaning, we can make our own truth, and all that really matters in life is happiness, you think it's working. I mean, does it seem to be working? And maybe your answer is, I don't know. Why don't you tell me? And so, okay. I will. There's a psychologist, a professor in Toronto, Canada, at the University of Toronto. He's a colleague colleague of a guy named Jordan Peterson, who some of you are probably familiar with. John Verveke is his name. Several years ago, John Verveke taught his students, taught a class on meaning and wisdom in life. And some of the things that came out of that class connected so deeply with some of the students that one of his students, whose dad was a producer of television shows, one of his students went to his dad and said, hey, we need to make something very well professionally produced out of this because this is super powerful. And what John Verveke suggested is that we're in the midst of a meaning crisis in the Western world. In other words, all of the movement of postmodernism and secular humanism has not led us to find meaning and truth, and happiness in life. In fact, it's led us to the opposite. It's led us to a place where we have a meaning crisis. Now, those are Verveke's observations based upon a lot of research that he's done. And you can find his series on YouTube, and it is probably worth watching. I spent roughly 50 hours watching his series on YouTube over the last several months. 
What I will tell you is that I agree with Verveke's observations, but most certainly not all of his conclusions. He's still searching. But I do believe he's right that we're in the midst of a meaning crisis. In fact, some of his data points out, and this is a significant statistic, that for the last two decades, we have been living in a time where the majority of suicides and suicide attempts are not because someone is struggling with a mental health disorder, but it's because someone has determined there is no meaning, value, and purpose in life. So why keep living? Now that's, that's big church. We can't miss that. People are asking this question, what is the point of life actually? Why does life even matter? Because again, secular humanism tells us, you and I, we can figure it out on our own. Postmodern worldview says you can figure out your own truth and just live it. But even as we look at the world, the words of the postmodernists, there are times where just in the midst of a short paragraph, you and I can look at that and say, that can't be true. Even as you're speaking about truth, the words that you're speaking are not true. And so we're back to this question. Why does life's narrative matter? Well, first, because like Peter, you and I can have the wrong story. I mean, we, we can have the wrong story. We can have the wrong story about Jesus. We can have the wrong story about God. And we can have the wrong story about life in its entirety. You and I can have the wrong story. But what we're learning is we critique and understand the movement of our current culture. And it's not just us from within Christianity that are critiquing the culture, it's the culture itself critiquing the culture. Is that if you and I have the wrong story, what tends to happen is this, is that the wrong story will have you. It will own you. It will define your life. And what we're also seeing is something that Jesus told us 2,000 years ago. So that when we struggle to find meaning and purpose in life, we feel lost. Isn't it interesting that the term used in Scripture, often to describe people who don't know Jesus and don't really know what life is all about and don't know why God created them to live, is the word lost. And it's not just to mean they're lost, and so what that means is they're lost forever and they're going to hell. That's what, No, we mean lost. They don't know the way. They don't know the right story. Maybe it's time we redeem the word lost and not allow it to mean someone who's just forever separated from God. Maybe it's time we allow it to, to become a term that brings us to compassion for someone who doesn't know what life is about. Here's what I believe, church, and why this message is an important one as we prepare for the rest of this series. Unless you and I become informed about the stories we believe and the culture around us believes as well, we're just as likely as the culture around us to have no real idea what life 
is about. But God has called us to be the people who know the better story. As we go through this series, we'll see that God has called us as well to be the people who believe the better story. And God has called us to be the people who live the better story. And then church, God has called us to be the people who share God's better story. That's the people you and I are called to be. Let's pray. Father, it's my prayer first that that when we get the story wrong, that just as Jesus, you lovingly took Peter and, and shook him and turned his worldview upside down, you might do that with us as well so that we would understand the right story. Whether it be about you, whether it be about God the Father, whether it be about life in general. God, I pray that as we try to understand what life is all about, we would go to you as the source. Understanding that you are truth. Understanding that you are the one who brings meaning and purpose to life. Understanding, Father, that only in you can we find true, deep happiness that is contentment and joy and all those things that we really truly want in life. But then, Father, I pray as well as we move through this series that you'll show us, that you'll teach us that once we've discovered meaning and purpose and truth in life, we're not called to keep that to ourselves. We're called to share that and to have a heart for people who are lost who are struggling to determine what life is about, who are in the middle of a meaning crisis. And it's my prayer that as we spend this time together, the word lost will be one that not moves us to judgment over people, but moves us to compassion for people. This is my prayer, God, that you would work through us, that you would raise up workers, that you would open doors, that you would give us the words to clearly communicate your story that changes everything. This is my prayer. And the church said together, Amen.